If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode... We're tackling the apartheid regime that spanned the second half of South Africa's 20th century. Our expert for today, answering your questions and popular internet search queries on the topic, is the historian Dr Wayne Dooling, Senior Lecturer in the History of Southern Africa and Chair of the Centre of African Studies at SOAS University of London. I spoke to Wayne to find out more. Thank you so much for joining me to talk all about apartheid. Obviously, this is a huge and really complex subject. So we're hoping that this episode will act as as something like an introduction for people who might not know anything and they can go off and learn some more. I wonder if you can start us off with the real basics. So what was apartheid? What are we talking about here? 
apartheid, it's obviously, as you said, it's a very complex uh, topic, but a short answer to what was apartheid, we're speaking about a very comprehensive body of legislation that was applied in South Africa. We can think of it in formal terms, but we can also think of it in, in informal terms. Mm-hmm. So in formal terms, the short, you know, the legal definition of what apartheid is, is, was, it was a body of legislation that existed in South Africa from 1948 through to its formal end in 1994. And it was a set of laws aimed at, in in, in the most neutral terms, aimed at separating the different South African racial categories. And these racial categories or racial groups, as the apartheid government, the apartheid state called at least, were created uh, in some sense out of uh, sort of pre-existing social formations or social contours, but they were solidified and rigidified under apartheid um, laws. And so at its base, uh, the, the sort of, you know, legal basis of apartheid was that South Africa consisted of a number four or so uh, specified racial categories, and that each of these racial categories was to be treated differently in some way or other. So that's a that's a, a fairly sort of neutral definition. And the apartheid state said that, argued that you know each of these categories was to be sort of separate but equal. That was the doctrine. Now, the reality, of course, is was anything but uh, equal, um, uh, that it was based on some overt discrimination against black people. And the, the sort of category of black was uh, divided as well. But, but mm. the four big sort of racial categories that the state uh, came up with were white uh, as the sort of first and the most privileged category. Um, a second category of people uh, the state called colored and these were people of sort of mixed racial descent, uh, people of indigenous uh, descent and people of slave ancestry. Uh, the third category was what the state called Asian or Indian. And these were people of, uh, literally people of Indian descent, but, but, but by and large descendants of people who had come to South Africa as indentured laborers to cut uh, sugar cane. And the fourth category, by far the biggest and most important category, was the category was the big African majority, and the state applies sort of different names to to the to, to this very big category. But the, the most commonly used word was that of Bantu, which was uh, you know an entire sort of misnomer. The word, of course, refers is a linguistic word, refers to a kind of body, a, a group of languages, a group of African languages. But that's the way linguists use the term. But the way the apartheid state used the term was to apply it to basically to um, the vast African majority. So that you know that was the system in broad terms. Mm-hmm. But an entire, you know, barrage of legislation kept this system of discrimination, this system of uh, of racial separation in place. So I think we'll, we'll talk later in much more detail about what that meant for people's everyday lives. Um, but before we do, I just want to cover off a couple of other things quickly. So James Dallin on Instagram asks, where does the word apartheid actually come from? And, and what does it mean, just the word itself? Okay, uh, so it's an Afrikaans word. The uh, Afrikaans pronunciation is apartheid, um, and it's been anglicized in Britain and elsewhere as apartheid. 
but it literally means uh, separateness. If you were a, a literal translation, uh, apart means to keep people apart. Uh, literally, it means uh, the separation of races. Um, that, that's that's uh, a literal translation, but yeah. of course, it, it means much more than that. Of course. And, and quickly on that term, Phil Gabe on Twitter as well asked, when did this legislation, body of legislation, start being referred to as apartheid? Was it always called that? No, 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 it wasn't always called that. The point about apartheid is that it was a very specific ideology that was introduced by a group of Africana nationalist thinkers, Africana ideologues. Uh, some of them were intellectuals, university academics, but also ministers, teachers, journalists, and so forth. Uh, pe- people, I guess, we'd call intelligentsia. Uh, the very first time that the term was used, the first sort of recorded record we have of the term was in 1929, but it really only came into general use from the mid-1940s onwards or uh, early to mid-1940s onwards. And uh, it, it, it was introduced by people within uh, the National Party, which became the sort of dominant Afrikaner Nationalist Party. And it was introduced as a ideological package to, to deal with what they saw as the country's sort of fundamental problem and, and what Afrikaner nationalists saw as a country, or what, or how they defined the country's fundamental problem, was um, what they, they called it the native problem. But essentially, what they meant was the increased urbanization of African people, uh, and this was a, a process that really got underway uh, in the nineteen teens, but really got got off uh, in, a, in a very big way in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and, and through throughout the second half of the 20th century. And this concerned Africana ideologues especially. And, and so apartheid was introduced as a sort of ideological package to deal with what they regarded as the failures of previous white governments. Now, previous white governments had other ways of dealing with, uh, you know, dealing in inverted commas with this particular problem, in problem in inverted commas too. <laughs> but Africana nationals of the National Party, you know, identified this as a really an electoral platform that got increasing traction in the in the in the early to mid nineteen forties. It's really interesting what you say there about this kind of growing movement that led to apartheid because people have asked questions about what preceded apartheid because it didn't spring from nowhere, did it? Um, so Hannah Laura Ridgely has asked, were there similar regimes or laws used before apartheid? Yes, yes, yes. No, that's a very good question. It's, it's important to recognise that apartheid didn't spring sort of from nowhere. And uh, we certainly shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that apartheid uh, was the first form of discrimination to exist in South Africa, that there were forms of discrimination that existed um, in preceding decades and even in preceding centuries. Of course, there was, you know, the fact we're speaking about a colonial society. This is a, a society that had experienced uh, first Dutch and then British colonial conquest. And so by the time apartheid was introduced in the 1940s, you know, Africans had very largely been dispossessed of uh, of their of their livelihood and and land and um, you know me, 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 means of subsistence, and when the new South African uh, state came into being, the the South Africa that we know today, the sort of, you know the, polit- the political and geographical entity that we know as South Africa today, comes into existence in 1910, and that state that that um, is founded. Their basic uh, political philosophy is what they call segregation, and this is official policy. And we have a number of pieces of legislation that are put in place after 1910 
that are explicitly discriminatory, explicitly racial. Uh, the single biggest piece of legislation that's passed uh, in this early period was the law called the Natives Land Act, and it was passed in 1913. But there were others as well. There was a 1923 uh, uh, piece of legislation called the Native Urban Areas Act. And these were all laws aimed at discriminating against Africans. The 1913 Natives Land Act was the single biggest piece of discrimination and what it does of divides South African agricultural land between white and black ownership. And 87% of South African land is set aside for white ownership and the remaining 13% is set aside for, for the African majority. So, you know, this is a, a fundamental piece of dispossession that precedes apartheid, but set by, you know, a number of decades. So, so to answer your question, we certainly shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that, you know, that the National Party that comes to power in 1948 is the first party to think of uh, of discriminating in this way. What is different, though, about apartheid, what, is, what happens in the 1940s, is that the National Party or Afrikaner ideologues, they see these earlier forms of discrimination of, of discrimination as having failed, that it doesn't deliver what preceding politicians uh, say it's going to deliver, which is, you know, to keep uh, white people secure, um, to keep the cities as um, areas entirely uh, so for white occupation, to keep Africans in their place more, you know, to, 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 to put it more colloquially. Increasingly, the uh, economy is suffers uh, strain as, as a consequence of the Great Depression. Of course, we had the worldwide Great Depression in the 1920s and 1930s. And African nationalism emerges out of these um, you know, e- economic strains of the depression, the sense in which white Africano uh, workers are feeling competition with African workers. In a very real sense, we can say that you know, apartheid, the, the ideology, the specific ideology of apartheid, as opposed from the broader forms of discrimination that the country had experienced in, in preceding years um, emerges out of this sort of crisis of the 1920s and 1930s. So when we get to 1948 and onwards, what are some of the foundational pieces of legislation that um, made apartheid possible? First of all, we have underpinning everything is the Population Registration Act, which divides country the country into different uh, racial categories. We Another very big piece of legislation was one called the Group Areas Act of 1950. And what the Group Areas Act does is that it sets aside urban residential areas for specific racial categories. So all South African cities are subdivided into uh, what the state calls group areas. So, you know, p- p- parts of uh, Johannesburg, parts of Cape Town, parts of Durban are, are, are set aside for white people specifically, for so-called uh, Indian or Asian people, so-called coloured people. And you know, and these people are literally confined specific uh, you know neighborhoods, uh, very you know defined uh, residential neighborhoods. Another piece of legislation was uh, the coordination um, of Passes Act, and what this does is that it brings together um, in a systematic or coherent way a myriad of different sort of past laws that existed. Um, in the country in previous uh, centuries, you know, the past laws go back to past laws go back to the colonial period. And what past laws were is they gave the state the right to restrict access or to restrict the freedom of movement of people. And very specifically, they were implemented to restrict access to cities, to urban areas. This 
particular body of legislation was you know hated by the african majority it was first applied to men but later applied to women as well and it basically gave the state the right to prevent people from moving from the countryside to the town the ideological premise on which this was based was that the, uh, was that africans were rural people and of course this was an entirely false premise africans had had you know centuries of uh, pre-colonial urban experience but the idea was that you know the cities were to be areas for white occupation and that the countryside and the, the and only you know parts of the countryside only small parts of the countryside the so-called the state called them reserves and the idea was that Africans were to be confined uh, to these reserves. Another big body of legislation, very important body of legislation, was passed in 1959. And what this did was effectively to uh, to divide, to balkanize South Africa, to divide the country, the entire country, into different geographical entities. And it was called the Homelands Policy, or sometimes it was referred to as the Bantustan Policy. And what this did was to uh, literally draw a map of South Africa and to divide the country up into different regions. Of course, the vast uh, bulk of the country, the vast geographical bulk of the country, was then identified as you know the proper South Africa, the South Africa uh, that was to be occupied by white people. And the small reserves that were created in 1913 were then um, uh, given... Uh, sort of nation status, or the idea was that ultimately these reserves would become self-contained, independent nations, independent countries. And the most important ones, there were four, there were several, but there were four uh, big ones that were identified for such status to start with, starting in the Eastern Cape, the Transkai and Siskai were two of these sort of reserves that were identified to acquire nation status. There was another one in the northwestern part of the country called Puputitswana, and in the north of the country, there was another one called Vendor. So this this was taking apartheid to its sort of highest limit. That in effectively, what it did was to strip Black South Africans of their citizenship, to tell Black South Africans that they were no longer South Africans, they were no, no longer citizens of South Africa, and that the only place where they had any legal right to reside was in these uh, designated spaces. Just to bring in one of the listener questions. Um, so obviously you've co- you've covered the restrictions on freedom of movement and the, the separate societies, but um, Laura Lee Sexo on Instagram has said, what were the rules under apartheid? And I wonder if you could just um, tell us about how other areas of life were also affected. Apartheid affected people's daily lives in, in very many different ways. And, and this, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to describe because there wasn't a single aspect of life that yeah. wasn't affected by apartheid in some way or other. So it affected. So let me let me start with the kind of big political um, dimension. So, you know, first of all, people, black people were not allowed to vote under apartheid. This was not not straight off, not off the bat. I should go back um, and say something about South Africa's um, you know, parliamentary system going back to the 19th mm-hmm. century. So the first South African parliament was parliament in the way that we know it, the sort of you know, a democratic body. That was established in 1853. And by all accounts, uh, even at the time, this was considered to be a liberal uh, parliament in the sense that the 
a basis for the franchise that what gave you the right to vote was a your sex so men only were allowed to vote but then that wasn't at all unusual for you know just um fairly fairly universal mm -hmm. uh, secondly was a property qualification in other words sort of not skin color so there wasn't anything to stop black men who met certain property qualifications from voting um and and a substantial number of black men did actually meet these property qualifications and they were by the standards of the time they were regarded even at the time they were regarded as a fairly sort of low qualification over the course of the decades in the 20th century when segregation laws are implemented but then when apartheid laws are implemented this sort of right to vote is eventually stripped away and and eventually sort of no black person in south africa has the right to vote so you you know so the the, the basically the entire black majority as uh, is disenfranchised by uh, uh, over over a period of time first before apartheid but then when when ultimately when apartheid comes uh, is fully implemented the black majority are completely disenfranchised so people don't, don't participate in formal politics in any way uh, of course there's quite a lot of informal politics but in terms of participating in the you know the the, the body the the parliament that makes the laws black people are entirely excluded uh, how did apartheid affect people's daily lives in in fundamental ways? Like I said, so it determined you know in which hospital you were born and in which cemetery you were buried. I mean that's literally from you know beginning to end. But it determined, as I said, uh, determined where you could live. The Group Areas Act determined that. It determined which school you went to. So all schools were segregated. Education, uh, you know, fun fundamentally sort of segregated. The state passed a. Uh, uh, an educational act called the Bunty Education Act, which basically, you know, did, uh, div divides educational policy along racial lines, and black people, uh, African people, are at the sort of bottom of mm -hmm. receiving state support for education, and the amount of money that's invested uh, in black education is. Um, you know, a fraction of what's invested in in white education. Your average black child uh, receives substantially less by into the state support compared to your average white child. Universities are segregated too. So the so South Africa has had uh, historically has had you know a number of big, very, very good, prestigious universities, but they were segregated and black people could attend uh, these sort of so-called white universities only under special conditions. Of course, fundamentally, it affected the kind of work that you did and it affected, you know, the amount of, uh, sort of money that you to, to which you had access. Uh, a fundamental part of apartheid was about the exploitation of black labor, of, of giving the apart giving the South African economy access to vast vast amounts of super exploited African mm -hmm. labor. Uh, so job reservation, for example, was a reservation for uh, reserving certain kinds of jobs for white people only and other kinds of jobs for black people only. This is a fundamental aspect of apartheid policy. So, and this was a way in which the apartheid economy could grow with, with some speed during the 1960s and uh, first half of the 1970s. Charlotte26 on Twitter asked an interesting question. It's it's kind of two questions, but I'll put them to you together. So she's um, asked, what was the experience of mixed race people and interracial couples during apartheid? The second question is perhaps easier to answer. Uh, inter interracial marriages 
were uh, completely prohibited. In fact, there was a there was a piece of legislation that that um, was called the Mixed Marriages Act that specifically outlawed sort of interracial marriages. And this was, you know, tied to the Population Registration Act, of which I spoke earlier. Uh, and the idea behind the Mixed Marriages Act and the Population Registration Act was to solidify these racial categories, is that you didn't want to create uh, a whole new, you know, cat category of people. And would there be punishments, for example, for interracial relationships? Yes, there were. There were, and, you know, this, you know, in the most sort of humiliating ways, you know, pe- people had, you know, in their most intimate relationships were invaded by police. People, you know, people had their bedrooms raided and so forth and so forth. So it's not, yes, you know, extremely sort of humiliating for people who were in such relationships. You asked about sort of uh, mixed race people. What was the experience of mixed race people? So as I said earlier, you know, there was uh, an entire category of people called coloured, and these were people of, of of racial descent. And they, you know, they occupied a, a kind of interstitial space, I suppose, between white and and African uh, people who were who suffered uh, all forms of discrimination, uh, but not to the same extent in terms of you know educational um, resources and so forth. But Bantu speaking people, there was there were separate facilities for all categories of people. So it was uh, another piece of legislation called the Separate Amenities Act, which uh, segregated public spaces, beaches, post offices, uh, park benches, you know, hospitals, police stations, post offices. All of these spaces were se- were segregated um, mm. along ra- along racial lines. So yeah, in in your everyday life, apartheid. Uh, in, in, uh, infected everyday life. Your points there about separate amenities have, have reminded me of a question that we've had um, from Ed Durbin, which is a which is a really interesting question, actually, uh, which is what were the similarities and differences with the Jim Crow system in the American South, which obviously covered a slightly earlier period of the 20th century, but I, I'm guessing you could draw a lot of similarities there. Yes, I mean, there certainly were similarities. Um I'd, you know, the similarities, of course, is that, you know, uh, African-Americans in the South were, were discriminated against by law, were pro- prevented from uh, from voting, were prevented from, you know, sitting on park benches and uh, attending certain schools and so forth. So, so those those forms of discrimination were were very similar. It's, of course, important to remember that when we're speaking about uh, Jim Crow laws in the United States, we're, of course, remember that we're speaking that you know they were applied to a minority of the population. African Americans were a minority in the United States, whereas in South Africa, of course, we're speaking about the large majority, the large African majority. So we have a, yeah. a minority government imposing laws on a majority population. But uh, one of the big differences is that you know Af- there there wasn't the same sort of barrage of legislation to prohibit the movement, the freedom of movement of people with within this sort of single geographical entity. Uh, pass laws for example, were, you know, uniquely South African and not not uniquely South African, in, but if compared the two, uh, the, yeah. these two countries, they were applied in other African countries too. But that would be one of the sort of big differences between Jim Crow laws uh, in the United States and apartheid in South Africa. So now I wanted to move on to a few questions about people who opposed um, apartheid. So how... How did people oppose or resist apartheid? What were some of the main forms of resistance? Yes. Um, so people resisted and opposed apartheid in very many different ways. Uh, I mean, that goes without that sort of stating the obvious. But I suppose what I mean to say is that there were 
informal and formal ways of resisting apartheid. So the formal ways are the are the ways that are probably you know best known to the wider public. So we had you know the founding of political parties. Of course, the best and most well known was the founding of the African National Congress, the ANC, today's ruling party in South Africa, and that that you know that party was founded well before the establishment of the party. It was founded in 1912, but it, it was very specifically aimed at resisting uh, black discrimination. And in the in the 1950s, when apartheid is fully implemented, the these formal political organisations, the ANC and others, you know, they 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 ramp up their uh, opposition to apartheid, and they do so in different ways. First of all, they do so uh, through largely what we might call sort of peaceful means of protest, through uh, protest marches, through delegations, through uh, petitions, deputations to government, and so forth. But these methods really fail to deliver uh, significant results. And in the 1960s, the ANC, but also the other main body that the main main political body that emerged by then an organization called the PAC, the Pan-Africanist Congress, it was a breakaway party from the ANC. Both of these launch an armed struggle, an armed campaign, a guerrilla war against South Africa. So that's you know that's one one level of uh, opposition to apartheid. Uh, but a lot of opposition to apartheid was not directed by these formal parties. A lot of it was directed by smaller parties, but a lot of it was, uh, some, you know, di- di- uh, in a sense, not directed um, by any one political party or one political body. And the, you know, the biggest public uh, opposition to apartheid that we see comes in the middle of the 1980s. I mean, there are earlier forms in, in, 19, in the 1960s and 1970s. But the big sort of crescendo, the big wave that the state can't push back, that comes in the middle of the 1980s. And you know, it's known in uh, historical literature as the Township Rebellion, um, 1985 to 87, 88. And it really puts the state on the back foot. The state, you know, it's important to remember the state has enormous powers of repression at its disposal. And, mm-hmm. and it's not as if the Township Rebellion uh, was able to overthrow the state in any kind of military sense. But it certainly was able to put the state on on the back foot. But going back in time, going to the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you know, vast sort of protest marches by men and women, big marches by women in the 1950s against past laws. There is a big demonstration against past laws in 1960 at a sort of town called Sharpville, famous, uh, famous moment of protest that, of course, results in a catastrophe, results in the death of sort of 69 people are uh, shot down by police. A very big student protest in the mid-1970s in Johannesburg in Soweto in 1976. And this um, is a sort of, you know, major sort of moment of opposition to apartheid and then the student protests, uh, industrial strikes throughout the 1970s and, and into the 1980s. So, you know, apartheid is, is, is opposed at sort of every level, you know, at, and, and of course there's an external dimension to opposition to apartheid as well. You know, the, the formal political bodies, the ANC and the PAC and others are are outlawed and they you know they find that they they, they are no longer op- able to operate from within South Africa's borders and they have to operate from within Southern Africa and in Europe so you know from even from London where uh, kind of opposition to apartheid continues 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And at, 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 at sort of ev- you know, at every level, the legacy of apartheid is with us. But you could also say that at every level, some, something has changed. It's not the same country that it was in uh, 1994. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford, Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire, or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You mentioned the ANC there, obviously, as um, primary opposers of apartheid. And the name that everybody associates with with the ANC is, of course, Nelson Mandela. Um, I've got a couple of questions that people search for about Nelson Mandela, which is is essentially what what did he do to to fight apartheid, but also why was he imprisoned? Yes. Okay. So, um, what does he do? A whole lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what what does Mandela do? So Mandela, you know, very quickly emerges as uh, the guiding light within uh, the African National Congress within the ANC. So the ANC in the 1940s, experiences something of what we might call a sort of generational schism, where a new younger generation come to the fore and basically edge out uh, the older men. And so Mandela is, is very much at the forefront of that. He's, he's one of a, of a number of people. Uh, Walter Sisulu is another uh, very well-known African nationalist, but also people like Govan Mbeki, um, who was the father of Itabu Mbeki, former president. Important as Mandela was, it's important to recognize that he was one of a cohort of people uh, who come to the fore and they argue very strongly to answer your questions to what they do. They count, they argue very strongly for um, a more assertive uh, 
Africanist form of politics, a more uh, uh, a more uh, sort of you know dynamic, um, aggressive uh, form of opposition. They they what they essentially say is a time for uh, for soft talk, the time for deputations, the time for you know po- polite politics has to be um, sort of set aside, and we have to move to a more assertive form of politics. And and uh, and Mandela's you know a key. A person in pushing forward for this or more assertive form of politics and ultimately for taking up the armed struggle. Uh, but he is very quickly imprisoned and you know and remains remains in prison for close on to three decades. And he's uh, he's uh, imprisoned along with a number of other people, imprisoned as you know, they were brought up on charges of treason for for planning to overthrow the state. And uh, as everybody knows, of course, they were found guilty. The state initially called for capital punishment, called for them to be executed. The South Africa had had the death penalty. This is the other thing to to remember, uh, that the death penalty was applied to political opponents. But the ultimately, the state sort of pulls back and Mandela and, and his co-accused are sentenced to sort of life, uh, terms of life imprisonment. And they are banished to Robben Island, which is the, the island prison in Table Bay. Mandela, you know, he, he sets off uh, this new assertive form of politics. But for, in fact, for most of his political life, he is in prison. Uh, but but he remains a sort of beacon of you know of anti-apartheid protest, anti-apartheid struggle. And I'm sure he might reappear later in our conversation. So you mentioned there the the tools of oppression that were available to the South African state. I wonder if you could give us some examples. The the basic point to make is that this is this was an extremely sort of oppressive regime that it you know it deployed all manner of methods uh, to keep the population, the African population, uh, suppressed, uh, both legal and extra-legal. People probably know about the extra-legal means, the forms of torture and detention without trial that the South African state deployed. But, you know, there was an entire sort of barrage of legislation that allowed the state to effectively dispense with the rule of law after the Shuffle Massacre of 1960. You know, the state passed uh, legislation to effectively, you know, allow it to keep people detained uh, indef- or seemingly indefinitely without uh, being charged, without, uh, you know, being put to trial. You know, large numbers of people suffered uh, extreme forms of torture, uh, you know, approved by the sort of Minister of Justice. It's important to emphasize that we're not talking about sort of rogue you know, police uh, men or you know police officials. Uh, we we are speaking about um, you know uh, torture and the repression that was sanctioned by the most senior sort of members of the government uh, from from this prime minister and president down to, to cabinet uh, ministers. But the other. A uh, fact that's frequently forgotten, or that p- people outside of South Africa are perhaps less aware of, is that large numbers of people were executed under apartheid legislation. So the organisation, in fact, that suffered most heavily was the Pan Africanist Congress, the PAC, and they had more than sixty 
of their guerrillas executed at Pretoria Central Prison uh, in the course of the 1960s for so-called acts of treason. And, you know, these, these, were, these were people who were, uh, you know, in war against apartheid. So uh, this was uh, an extremely uh, repressive state, um, you know, that apartheid was much, much more than not being allowed to sit on a park bench. So I just wanted to ask you a bit about the the global context. So um, Naomi Warwick had an interesting question, uh, which I think will resonate with a lot of people in Britain, for example, and America, who who remember this from an external perspective, who asked, did um, sport international sporting boycotts um, that other countries um, laid against South Africa, did they actually have any impact on how South Africans felt about the policy of apartheid? They absolutely had an effect. They, they definitely had an effect. And the, the single biggest effect that they had was to be part of a concerted campaign to isolate South Africa um, in every way. But the anti-apartheid struggle, more broadly defined, had as one of its most important aims was to isolate South Africa in every way. So this, the the uh, sports boycott was, a, of course, because so many people are interested in sports, was a fundamental pillar of that. And so South Africa is kicked out of uh, the Olympic Games, for example. South Africa is removed from the Commonwealth. I mean, the South African state said that they left, but effectively they were they were removed from the Commonwealth. Uh, the sports boycott was twinned with a, a sort of cultural boycott, with an academic boycott, where academics who were based in Britain and elsewhere in the world, Europe and the United States, were asked not to participate in academic activities in South Africa. There were, of course, economic sanctions, which were part of this kind of package of seeking to isolate South Africa. And the sports boycott uh, did so very effectively um, at two levels. You know, it, 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 it certainly left the South African state in no doubt that the world, the rest of the world were, you know, condemning of what uh, of, of their policies of of what was happening in South Africa. But it also, I think, had an impact upon white South Africans who, who felt isolated and felt you know, in, you know, left out of international events, left out of these big international sporting events. And whatever victories white South Africans might have had on the sports field were clearly always tainted by the fact that they never really participated in international competition. On the point of... of- the global context, Tommy Omak on Instagram asked a really interesting question. Did any foreign governments publicly support apartheid? It depends on how you how you how you uh, define the support, but certainly um, there <laughs> there were very few foreign governments who condemned South Africa outright, or if they did condemn South Africa outright, then there was it, it was always sort of tempered by support in in other ways, and you know certainly you know foreign governments condemned the ANC, Margaret Thatcher, of course, famously con- condemned. Uh, the ANC as a terrorist organization and not a, a body, a political party worth speaking to. The United States condemned apartheid in a in 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 you know at, at one level, but at, at another level continued to do business with the apartheid government. Scandinavian uh, governments, Scandinavian countries were probably uh, the most clear clear in their condemnation of apartheid and clear in the support of opposition. Uh, parties. Um, a complex picture then. Um, I want to put to you quite an interesting question we've had in from um, Jorn Eichhorn now. So Jorn says, um, as crazy as it might seem to us today, 
Was there a time when the majority of white people in South Africa thought apartheid was acceptable? And what would they have provided as their their justifications for that? I mean, you can judge by the voting record. The fact is that you know the the fact is that white the, the National Party won uh, one election after the other uh, mm-hmm. for forty years of its time in power, more than forty years of its time in power. So, and in fact, increased its electoral majority as time went by. So, it's interesting to to point out that when the National Party came to power in 1948, it actually had only a very narrow electoral majority. Its electoral victory in 1948 was was partly a consequence of the way in which electoral boundaries are drawn. Um, It was a a Westminster-type system where the the winner takes all, so you don't necessarily need a majority of votes to, to a majority of people voting for you to actually win the election. And the National Party won that election largely uh, thanks to the thanks to rural constituencies and largely thanks to Afrikaans speakers. Um, but as time went by, they increased their share of the vote and increasingly gained the share of English speakers. So so if you went by a electoral results alone, then clearly the majority of voters, people yeah. who voted for the National Party, you know, so supported the party, supported the National Party, and, and by extension supported the party because that was fundamentally what the party was about. So yes, the short answer is um, white people did support, did support the National Party and did support the party and believed in it firmly and believed in it as, you know, the best way to, quote unquote, solve the country's "Quote unquote native problem," but of course, what it also did was to deliver an enormous amount of privilege to um, to South Africa's white population. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the fact is that this this is you know, this is one one of apartheid's biggest achievements was to deliver substantial wealth to the white population at the expense of the African majority. So, uh, so people did did support it, did support, and you know, it, it brought. A party that has brought a very high standard of living to white South Africans. That might take us nicely onto a question that we've had from the Golden from Golden on Instagram, who who asked, given the the condemnation and and the protests and the upheaval, why did apartheid last so long? Would you would you say that it was that reason? It was that it was the economic privilege. That it granted the white population. Uh, that's that's one part of it, but I, I would turn the question around and, and ask, you know, why? Oh, yes, why? Why did it last so long? But the fact, the, the question is, why did the African majority not succeed earlier in overthrowing the apartheid state? And the answer to that is, or one part is a very complex answer, but one part of the answer is simply that the state had enormous powers of repression at its disposal. This was, uh, you know, uh, uh, this was a country, uh, a state with the most powerful. Uh, military in Southern Africa, arguably the most powerful military on the African continent, that had support from you know Western governments. When we had these moments of real sort of horror and trauma, 1960 was Sharpville, 1976 with um, Soweto. What happens in the immediate aftermath of both of those incidents is that uh, Western governments and you know international capital withdraws from South Africa. There's, there's, a, there's a flight of capital from South Africa. But as soon as the South African state is able to sort of stabilize the situation, the capital comes back in and, you know, and, and, and international capital continues to do business with apartheid because this is a highly 
industrialized at that time fairly successful economy. So one way of answering that sort of question, why does apartheid long as, last as long as it did? It lasts as long as it did because the South African state continues to have the means of suppression at its disposal. You know, and, and this is the suppression extends beyond South Africa, it extends into Southern Africa. So you know the, the civilian population of Southern Africa pays an enormous price for the continuation of apartheid in South Africa. The South African state doesn't sort of hesitate at all to make its means of repression uh, felt throughout the region. Um, and, and the fact is that, you know, the black majority sort of struggle ag- against uh, that kind of power, that kind of repressive power. How did apartheid end? <laughs> um, there, <laughs> there are there are se- several dimensions to that question. An important context is the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, and where a big part of you know South Africa's support, the South African government's support uh, from Western governments, is in the light of the Cold War. When that particular dimension of the Cold War ends, then you know South South Africa is uh, le- less less sort of important as a uh, to Western government as a bulwark to the continued so-called onslaught of communism in Southern Africa. Uh, another dimension to the question is that the South African economy uh, is increasingly able to grow. Um, the South African economy, in fact, grinds, the gro- growth, in fact, grinds to a halt, largely as a consequence of apartheid policies that, you know, you, you can't run uh, uh, an industrialized capitalist economy on purely on unskilled cheap labor. You need a certain level of skill. And the South African economy, apartheid education doesn't deliver that, fails to deliver that. So the, so the apartheid economy is, in fact, on, on the skids too. But I, I'd say, you know, pride of place in any explanation has to go to increased opposition, to domestic opposition, and and then to internal opposition. But I I said earlier that you know throughout the nineteen eighties, the second uh, middle of the nineteen eighties, nineteen eighty five through to nineteen eighty seven, eighty eight. There's simply a groundswell of opposition. You know, one uh, day of protest after the other. And the South African state is never able to quell that opposition. And increasingly, it becomes clear to the South African government that they've effectively sort of run out of options. The change in government is an important factor. There's a, the, the South African president, a man called uh, P.W. Boerter. He uh, suffers a stroke and is replaced by uh, a, a new leader, F.W. de Klerk. And that's, that's an important factor. And then the new leadership of the National Party is uh, perhaps uh, more open to seeing uh, sort of the limits of possibilities, um, you know, more open to seeing that the state had effectively run out of options. The uh, a region, there's a there's a very important regional dimension to the end of apartheid too. There, uh, you know, the the South African government had become embroiled in a war in Angola that it was increasingly unable to so win and unable to kind of get out of. And, and so the South African government, you know, finds that it's fighting a war on multiple fronts. It's fighting a it's fighting a township rebellion that it can't win. It's fighting this sort of regional war in Angola that it can't win. It's fighting you know, an international kind of moral war that it can't win. You know, the sports boycott, the cultural boycott, the academic boycott, all of these things. 
and it's fighting an economic battle that it can't win the South African economies on this. So all, all of these things really come together in the late 1980s, uh, beginning of the 1990s, and the South African government eventually realizes in, you know, at the end of the 1980s, 1989, 1990, that, uh, you know, we need to embark on a new sort of strategy. And the strategy is to free political parties, uh, to free political prisoners, to allow political parties to resume uh, activity within South Africa and to start a process of political negotiation. And that happens in 1990. As with any major historical shift, of course, things didn't just change overnight and were instantly fixed. And I think that leads us on to a, to a question from Terry Graham. So Terry Terry actually started by saying, this is a subject I should know more about. So hopefully now, now he does. Um, but Terry asked, how successful were the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that were established to, to deal with the legacy of apartheid? Okay, so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the TRC, um, the first thing to say about it, it, has a, it had a very sort of limited remit. Uh, it, it sought to investigate very specific uh, atrocities, very specific, uh, very specific set of events. I mean, it delivered an enormous report uh, when proceedings finally closed. Um, but its main achievement was to, I guess, put a final nail in the coffin of the idea that apartheid was somehow morally defensible. As importantly, or possibly more importantly, what he would say is that it brings to light, especially for the benefit of people who had lost loved ones, mothers uh, who had lost sons and fathers who had lost spouses and so forth in the, in the war, in the uh, guerrilla war and the township rebellion, uh, increasingly, people were able to find out what had happened to their loved ones, and that you know that is priceless, and you you can't sort of put value on that. Perpetrators of atrocities, or perpetrators of human rights abuses, were finally you know made to uh, well, in fact, it was voluntary, but but met, but in there was enormous amount of moral pressure, but were finally uh, you know had had the moment where they had to. Where they had to face in a public arena the victims of their actions, and I think that you know these were very important sort of moments uh, for for people who had suffered, you know, forms of torture and abuse, and people whose loved ones had been murdered and disappeared, and you know, pe- pe- a lot of people finally got some answers to sort of specific um, uh, to, to specific events and specific cases. Where the TRC was more sort of limited was in you know in 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 the everyday in the mundane. So people who perhaps you know had not lost loved ones, but had nevertheless suffered from apartheid in their everyday lives. I mean, the TRC brought very little to such people. And finally, I've got another impossibly huge question for you, but I wonder if you could set us off on some of the the key threads really here, um, which is just what the legacy of apartheid today is and, and how it can still be felt in South Africa? So the legacy of apartheid, of course, is very much with us in South Africa in the in everyday life. One of the most basic legacies is a division of wealth in, in South Africa. So the, the basic divide, if you're looking at, at the uh, share of the pie in South Africa, the basic divide is still between white and black. Um, South Africa is uh, just about the most unequal country in the world. I mean, it 
depending on what you measure and when you measure. But at any one time, it will be in the top two or three of the most unequal countries in the world. And that is clearly a legacy of not just of apartheid, but of colonial disposition more broadly. But apartheid brought a very specific dimension to that. So that's that's a, a sort of fairly basic legacy. Now, I'm not at all saying that South Africa is unchanged in that regard. What we have seen uh, since the end of apartheid is the growth of a significant middle class, a substantial middle class. A large numbers of black people have uh, sort of made it into the middle class as it were, uh, a large number of black people have been able to gain uh, professional occupations, professional skills, uh, to participate in the civil service and to participate in public life in the way that uh, sort of previously was denied them. So these are, you know, f- very big fun- fund- fundamental changes uh, since the uh, since the end of apartheid. So we'd have to say that the legacy of apartheid is certainly a, a mixed one. Apart the, the legacy is very much with us, you know, in every way. Um, if you look at any South African city, you walk into any South African city, uh, Johannesburg, Cape Town, Durban, East London, Port Elizabeth, any of these big cities, the racial geography is still very much follows the contours that were set in place during uh, during apartheid days. So, uh, you know, a residential neighbourhood that would have been a predominantly that would have been a white neighbourhood. Uh, during apartheid would now be a predominantly white neighborhood, if not an exclusively white neighborhood in any um, South African city. It varies from city to city, but but largely that's the case. You know, the achievements in sport, for example, you know, black uh, athletes are still very much on the back foot, are still sort of left out. And, uh, and this is a Obviously, a sort of consequence of a consequence of of access to to other resources. But if you were to look at healthcare, for example, there are huge divides between access to good healthcare between the white and black population. And at 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 sort of ev- you know at every level, the legacy of apartheid is with us. But you could also say that at every level, some something has changed. It's not the same country that it was uh, in 1994. <laughs> That was Dr. Wayne Dooling, Senior Lecturer and Chair of the Centre of African Studies at SOAS, University of London. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Cole. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.